The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We paused last week from our study in Luke's Gospel for Easter Sunday, and now we return back picking up where we left off in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll give attention this morning to verses 1 through 9 in Luke chapter 9. Luke writes, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, And do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. God's infallible and errant word. As we jump into Luke chapter 9, we find ourselves in an important transition point in the Gospel of Luke. This event that that Luke describes for us here was a very important transition point. Up to this point, the apostles had been watching Jesus minister. That had been the extent of their responsibility. They had, they had given up their careers. They had left their homes. They had been traveling with Jesus everywhere he went. They had been listening to him teach. They had been watching him minister. They had been listening to his sermons. They had been watching him heal sick people and cast demons out of demon-infested people. They had watched him relieve human suffering left and right. In a sense, they've been in Jesus' classroom watching and listening and learning. But now it's time for a change. It's time for them to be cast out of the comfort zone of being watchers and listeners and observers. And now they're going to become practitioners. This one-man show is about to become a group enterprise. Jesus is going to initiate multiplication of his ministry. As we walk through the gospel from here on out, we're going to see in Christ sort of an, sort of an ever-increasing uh, sense that the end is coming, uh, an ever-increasing uh, ever sense that the cross is getting closer and closer, and he knows that his death is, is, is coming, and once he's gone, the, 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 the ministry of the gospel, the message of the gospel is going to be dependent upon these 12 men. And their ability to take what they've heard and what they've seen and to spread it throughout the known world. 
And so at this point in time, Jesus sets them out on an internship, if you will. He sets them from being observers to being practitioners. There's a big difference between being an observer and being a practitioner. There's a big difference between watching somebody else do something and you doing it, isn't there? There's a big difference between having head knowledge about how to do something and having practical experience of actually doing it, right? These are not the same thing. We live in a culture where there's an awful lot of confusion about that. We, we, we live in a, in a social media world where everybody is a self-appointed expert simply by observation, but rarely by any sort of practice. Everybody's an armchair quarterback, to use a sports illustration, right? You know what an armchair quarterback is. There are people who sit in their armchair, and they know everything the coach is supposed to do. They know everything the players are supposed to do. They scream at their TV when people dare defy their great wisdom in their armchair with their Cheetos on their big belly that hasn't done a sit-up in probably six months while they watch people who are professionals on TV actually practice what they know how to do. For heaven's sakes, for the last two years, we've got a whole world full of health experts, right? Whose only experience in the health field is just by observation of other people, never actually practicing anything, but experts on it all, simply by observation. We live in a culture filled with people who've never actually practiced anything but self-appoint themselves as experts, from sports to politics to ministry. They think that because they've observed something, that makes them a subject matter expert. But the reality is, you can't develop expertise in anything by simply observing it. Nothing. The only way to, to develop expertise in anything is to actually do a thing. It's to actually get out there and, and practice something. It's to, it's to get your hands dirty and to get out there and start doing the things that you think you understand in your head. And these 12 have been watching for a while now. They've been listening and they've been observing and they've been learning. But now they need some practical application. They need some opportunity to get out there and take what they've seen and what they've heard and what they've observed and actually put it into practice in real life. In order for them to, to become effective ministers for Christ when he's gone, there are some critical things that they need sort of burned into their lives. And they're things that you can't get by observation. They are things that only come through practice and through doing a thing, through active participation. And while the command or the, the call to these disciples and, and what Jesus does with them in this particular instance is really a unique sort of an event, he does something with him, with them, that he doesn't do with the broader Christian world writ large. He empowers them in some unique ways that are unique to them and unique to that era of human and redemptive history. Things that we should not expect to be normative throughout the entire history of the Christian church. But while that's true, at the same time, there are some principles underneath this that are absolutely applicable to every believer and to everyone who would ever seek to minister for the Lord Jesus Christ at any point in any time in history. And I want you to see in this text really five critical components for effective ministry. Five critical components that, that, that you need, that I need, if we're going to make a difference for Christ in the world. Anybody, I would 
conjecture this morning that has ever made a difference for Christ in the world has at some point wrestled with these things and come to terms in their heart with these particular characteristics. And I want you to see them from our text this morning, and we'll just sort of shape our look at the text this way. The first of these things is this. It's confidence in God's message. We're told at the beginning that he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of, of God and to heal. And then down in verse 6, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The first thing that these men needed to really develop in a practical sort of a way was a confidence in the message that they were to deliver. Up to this point, they've been traveling again with Jesus. Jesus has been doing all of the teaching. They have been with him all of this way. But now they're getting ready to be sent out without him. They were the ones that are called to be, to be doing the work of the ministry. They were being sent out to try to do ministry on their own for the first time. Jesus wasn't going with them. He wasn't going to be holding their hand all along the way. They were going to be sent out by themselves. Mark tells us that they went out in groups of two. So they weren't literally by themselves. They at least had one, so there was at least six groups, right, with two in each. And they were set out in different directions to go out and to, to do this ministry. We're not sure exactly how long this particular internship lasted. But however long it lasted, for the very first time, they were on their own. And the primary thrust of Jesus' ministry that they've been observing this, part, this, this far has been a preaching ministry. Jesus was at first and foremost a preacher and a teacher. He did a lot of other things, but he never strayed away from his primary objective, and that was teaching truth to people who needed to hear truth. Jesus was a preacher. He was a teacher. And that always remained the main thing for him. And it was to this same kind of ministry that he was training these apostles. They would primarily become preachers. They would primarily be, be called to be men who took the content of truth that they heard from Christ and delivered it to anybody who would listen everywhere that they went. They were the men who were going to be responsible for spreading the gospel to the known world after Christ's death and after his resur resurrection. And so they had to be able to, to, in order to be able to do that to, with any degree of success and with any de degree of continuity and staying power, they had to have, at, in their very heart of hearts, a confidence in the message that they were preaching. And so we're told here that the first thing they needed to do was to get out there and to proclaim the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel. The word translated proclaim here is the word kiriso. In Greek, it's a word that simply means to herald. It's the activity that would have been carried out by an ancient herald in the first century before mass media and before the internet. Heralds were people who were employed by the king to go out and deliver a message on his behalf. They would come to the city square and they would set up in a place where people would gather and would be able to hear and they would declare out loud, they would herald a message from the king. Hear ye, hear ye, the king has spoken and you need to hear what he said because you're accountable to obey what it is that he has decreed. They represented the king and they spoke with his authority. And the words that they delivered carried the full weight of the authority of the king. And people were expected to, to hear it and to obey it. And there was a cost to not doing so. 
A herald didn't make up their own message. They declared the message of the king. The herald had no right to, to change the message or edit the message or to soften it or to harden it or to do anything to it. His only job was to take the message delivered to him and then deliver it to the people who needed to hear it on behalf of the king. It was the king's message, not theirs. And it was meant to be delivered and it was meant to be obeyed. And Jesus had called these men to be heralds, to be his heralds that went on his behalf into town after town, village after village, declaring to the people his message, his truth. What was that message they were to declare? Well, he says it's the, the kingdom of God and later the gospel. We haven't talked a whole lot about this phrase, the kingdom of God, though it's come up a couple of times in Luke's gospel so far. The kingdom of God, when you see that in the gospels, you, you don't want to think in terms of geography or geographic territory. This is not a geographic kingdom that, that is the, king of, the kingdom of God. It's, it's not a geographic location. It's not a place you get in your car and you go. When you see the kingdom of God, think in terms of the sovereign rule of God over the hearts of his people. It's, for now, an invisible kingdom. It's God's rule and his reign in the hearts and over the hearts of the people who belong to him in the world. Phil Riken says this, he says, the kingdom is present everywhere, or excuse me, the kingdom is present wherever God exercises his kingly power and wherever people honor and serve him as their king. That was the message that these men were to deliver. It was the message that Jesus was preaching. Back in chapter 4, verse 43, Luke recorded this. And he said to them, this is Jesus, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This is my purpose, to go and preach the kingdom of God. The message, the kingdom of God is at hand. The long-awaited kingdom of God, the kingdom of God prophesied in the Old Testament. It is here. It is at hand. The king has arrived, and entrance to the kingdom can be found through repentance and faith in the king. That's the message that was being delivered. They were to proclaim that the kingdom has arrived, and the king has arrived. And there was a way to enter into his kingdom through repentance and faith. That's the, the message these men were to deliver. They weren't to spend a whole lot of time talking about the culture or discussing social affairs or debating politics or chasing after whatever trendy issue the culture was talking about at a moment. They were supposed to go into every town and herald the kingdom of God, the good news. They were to call men to repentance and faith in Jesus. That was the message. And that was the message because it was the only message that had the power to change a human heart. It was the only message upon which eternal destiny of human beings hangs in the balance. It is the message of the gospel that has the power to change men's hearts. The Apostle Paul would later say it this way in Romans 1.16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. You see, Paul understood. He understood it wasn't his responsibility as an apostle of the Lord to cook up some new message. It was his responsibility to be a herald of a very old message, a powerful message, a message that has the power to save anyone who believes it. He understood the message didn't need to be embellished. 
It didn't need to be updated. It didn't need to be helped along or edited. It just needed to be heralded. It needed to be declared. It needed to be preached. It needed to be taught. And men needed to be called to believe and to repent and to entrust their lives to the king. And by doing so, they could find eternal life, entrance into his kingdom. These men needed to get out there and they needed to preach the gospel. And they needed to preach it because they needed to see for their very own selves the power of the message to transform a human heart. And they needed to have confidence in that message so they wouldn't be tempted to stray off onto other things. Trivial things, foolish things, things that have no power to do anything. My friends, today we, we have even more to herald than they had on that day, don't we? We, knew, we know more of the message than they knew on that particular day, don't we? We have really the full story of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We know what happens to the king. We don't declare a message now that, that the, just that the king has arrived and by repentance and faith you can be into his kingdom. We can tell him the whole story, can't we? Not only has the king arrived and his name is Jesus Christ, he's the perfect God and the perfect man all together in one, but he lived a perfect life. He was crucified on a Roman cross for your sins and for mine as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. He actually died. He was actually buried in a Roman tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave conquering sin, death, hell, Satan. At this very day, he lives. He's ascended to the Father where he sits at his right hand now, and he rules and he reigns over all creation. And one day, he's going to return, and he's going to come back. And he's going to judge the living and the dead, and he's going to reward the faithful, and he's going to judge the wicked. That is the gospel. That is the good news that people need to hear. That is the message that has the power to change a human heart. And that's what God's people are to proclaim. That's what we're to herald to the world around us. That's what these men were called to. And we have all the more reason to do the same. And as believers today, it's so easy for us to get sidetracked from heralding the gospel. We can end up spending our time talking about so many trivial things, so many silly things that have no real lasting value whatsoever. And never actually getting around to heralding the gospel to somebody who needs to hear it. There's a temptation for us to, to chase after every cultural issue that the world is enamored with around us. That's true on a personal level. We get sucked into the world's conversation and consume our thoughts and our minds with those things. What do you think about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock? Who cares? Honestly, what lasting value does a conversation about that have? There's none. But for heaven's sakes, people have been talking about it forever. What do you think about Johnny Depp's divorce and his defamation suit against Amber Heard? I could care less. I don't need to know that and it has no value in my life whatsoever, nor yours. But scroll through your social media feed and see how many times it pops up every day. I like watching him be a pirate. That's all I care about. I don't care about the rest of it. But we're so easily sucked into conversations that are meaningless talking to lost people about things that have no power to change them, to save them. Just pause for a moment, if you will, and consider 
How many conversations you've had with people who don't know Christ this week or this month or this year? How many of those conversations ever got around to the real message that has the power to save their heart and their soul? Nothing else we talk about has the power to save. Just the good news of Jesus. That's it. It's true on a corporate level too. On a corporate level where the church is all the time tempted to chase every cultural issue in the world. Hundreds of Christians, or thousands of Christians around the world will fill up hundreds of churches this morning and they'll worship in places where the gospel is never even taught in the context of Christian worship. They'll hear stories, they'll hear jokes, and they'll hear tips for a happy life, and they'll hear about all sorts of trivialities and so forth. But the gospel's obscured and never made clear and made plain. And it happens all around. And all the while, there's a, there's a whole world around us that's dying and going to hell, literally. Many of whom are going there begin, never having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because nobody has ever told them. And God's call to these men was to get out there and share the only message that matters. And that call is on us as well. These men were getting ready to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was going to revolutionize the whole culture around them. But first, they needed to get out there and they needed to get some practice doing it. They needed to see lives transformed. They needed to gain some sort of confidence in the message. And there's no way to gain that other than getting out there and heralding it. The only way to gain confidence in sharing your faith is to share your faith. The only way to get good at sharing the gospel is to get out and share the gospel. You can't learn it by observation. You get comfortable with it and you get confident in it by doing it. These men needed a confidence in their message and so Christ sends them out and he says, you're gonna get out there without me and you're gonna go out there and you're gonna tell them the message. You're gonna preach the kingdom and you're gonna give them the gospel and you watch and see what happens. They needed that confidence. Another thing they needed was they needed compassion for human suffering, and he wants them to understand that too, and this trip is all about that as well. Not only does he call them to go out and preach, but we're told that they're to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then we're told in verse 6, again, they go about in all the villages, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're healing everywhere. As I mentioned, Jesus was primarily a, he was primarily a preacher, but that wasn't the only thing he did. He wasn't only a preacher. He was also a healer. His ministry was, was a ministry that was both in word and in deed. It was a, a ministry that cared both for people's eternal souls and also for their mortal bodies. He did both. And we've already seen in Luke's Gospels, we've been studying it, his compassion for human suffering. We watched him go into a synagogue in the middle of a, of a, of a, of a Sabbath worship service and see a poor man with a withered up hand and the suffering that that man was dealing with. And Jesus moved by compassion for this man's human suffering, he makes his withered hand whole right there in a moment. We've watched him heal a man that was infested with demons. We've watched him heal another man that had a demon in the middle of a church service. And the intense suffering that goes along with demonic possession and, and moved by compassion for, for the suffering of these individuals, he healed them, he released them. He gave them relief. We saw him walk up on a funeral procession for a, a, a hopeless widow who just lost her only son. And moved by her suffering and her pain and her grief, 
He brings the boy back to life. We've watched him time and time again stand out in, in, in open in the public where masses of sick and infirmed people literally crushed in around him and spent all day, one after the other, after the other, after the other, healing them of their diseases and their afflictions. Literally to the point of exhaustion. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of the word, but it was also a ministry that cared deeply about people. He loved people, and he cared about their suffering. And quite often, he relieved their suffering as a ministry. He wasn't just a cold preacher who just cared about delivering intellectual content to people's minds. He loved people, even rebellious people. He loved people who were hurting and people who were suffering, and he was moved to heal their bodies and give them relief. And the ministry of the apostles needed to be the same kind of a ministry. It needed to be a ministry of preaching the gospel, but it needed to be a ministry that was marked by a genuine love for people and a genuine compassion for their suffering. You can't preach to people effectively whom you don't love. You can't give the gospel to people effectively when you don't care about them. You can't do it from a sort of a, a sanitized distance without getting up close to their life and understanding how they're hurting and doing what you can to care for them. And so Jesus gives these men his power and he gives them the authority to heal. And so they're to go out there and preach and they're to, to do what he did. They're to bring healing to people who are suffering. He specifically gives them the power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. And these are miraculous powers that they did not previously have. And he gives them this power and authority to do this really for two reasons. First, to provide mercy to the afflicted. And that's what we're talking about here. But secondarily, there's another purpose. He gives them the power and the ability and the authority to do these things miraculously in order to validate the message that they're preaching, that it's the truth. They're to preach the truth and the gospel just like he did. And to show that what they were saying was true and that it was genuinely from God. They had the power to heal. And validated their message. It confirmed that what they were saying was truly from God. That this ability to miraculously heal and to exercise demons was unique to this season. They went about preaching the kingdom of God. They declared Christ as king that had come to redeem people. And they, 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 they called people to... To, to faith and repentance and belief upon him. And then they performed these miracles as, as confirmation that the message was true. It was a unique empowerment for a unique group at a unique time in history. It was not a normative kind of empowerment for the rest of redemptive history. As the New Testament is completed and as these men begin to die off and fade from the scene, this kind of miraculous personal empowerment to heal and to perform exorcisms at will begins to taper off the scene. From then on, if you want to know if a preacher's preaching the truth, if he's got the right message, if it's a message that's genuinely from God, he doesn't have to perform a miracle for you. Just open up God's word and you compare his message to the word and you'll know whether he's telling the truth or not. Today, God doesn't, I don't believe God gives individuals the power to miraculously heal like these men had. He doesn't empower people to go around healing at will with his power the way he did. Of course, God himself can, he can heal anybody he wants, and he does, 
He can, he can and does heal anybody he wants, anytime he wants, anywhere he wants. He normally does that in response to prayer, if I understand the New Testament right, but not always. Sometimes he just chooses to sovereignly heal people. All of that is encapsulated underneath his sovereign will. We're not given the power to walk around in hospitals and to move from town to town healing anybody who comes to us. Nobody has that power like Jesus had it and like the apostles were given it for this season. But that doesn't mean we're to ignore this. Just because we aren't given the same power to heal doesn't mean we're to ignore the same kind of care and concern for people's human suffering. That's the principle underneath it. We're called to the same kind of ministry in general. We're called to the same kind of ministry that cares for both the body and the soul. Uh, A kind of ministry that, that ministers both to people's material needs and also their spiritual needs. We're not just drive by people who just dunk the gospel and run. Like a drive by shooting or something. We're to care for people. We're to love people. We're to do what we can to alleviate their their hurt and their suffering to the ability that we're given by the Lord to do that. Sometimes this looks like feeding the hungry. Sometimes this looks for caring and praying for the sick. Sometimes it looks like showing hospitality uh, to people who have very little. Sometimes it might look like just welcoming strangers. Sometimes it, it might look like going somewhere and providing clean water to people who don't have access to clean water as you give them the gospel. It may look like helping provide food and shelter and love to Ukrainian refugees on the other side of the world. It could look like a thousand things, but underneath the faithful witness of the faithful messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ is a concern for their soul, but it's also a concern for their hurt because you love them. To be effective ministers for Christ, we have to love people. We have to have compassion for them in their lives. We have to be concerned about their hurt and their pain and their grief. To whatever degree the Lord gives us opportunity and ability, we're to come alongside them and to serve them in those ways, to care for their souls and to care for their bodies. And to care for their suffering does nothing but validate our genuine concern for their soul. It's been said a million times, people don't care how much you know until they, what? They know how much you, you care, right? Our acts of love and caring for people's material needs, it confirms the authenticity and the truthfulness of the gospel we preach, and it opens doors of opportunities to care for their spiritual needs. So we're to love people. And these men needed to do this. They needed to get out there, and they needed to see human suffering up close, and and they needed to experience actually having the ability to, to relieve that suffering and to care for them up close and personal, and they needed to develop in their hearts a love for the population that they were called to serve. So they needed confidence in the message and they needed compassion for human suffering, but they needed more than that. They also needed a dependence upon God's power. We're told that he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. These men had seen Jesus' power and authority on display in a lot of ways, hadn't they? They had seen this on display. They had seen his power over sickness and disease. They had seen his power even over over death. He's literally raised dead people to life. They had seen him in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee stand up and speak to the environment and tell it to settle down, and it did. He had authority over the wind and the waves. 
He had the authority to, to, to command a demon and multiple demons, and those demons had no choice but to bow to his authority and obey. They had been watching Jesus' power and his authority. However, these men were just ordinary men. They didn't have any innate power to do those kinds of things. They didn't have any innate authority to do any of those kinds of things themselves. To do any of those things, they would have to rely on his delegated power into their lives. If, they were going, if people were going to actually believe the message was from God, they were going to need to see the power and authority of God alive and displayed in the lives of these men, these messengers. And so Jesus calls them, and we're told he gives them two things, power and authority. Power and authority are not the same thing. Power is a different word from authority in the text, and there are different meanings. Power here, dunamis, really means the divine ability to accomplish something that's impossible in this context. It's the divine ability to accomplish something. Authority is the right to carry out something. And he gave them both, the power to do it and the right to do it. And just as Jesus could had the, the power and the authority to command a disease to go away, these men would have it. Just as he had the power and authority to command demons and they had to bow to, to his will and obey, these men would also have that. These men needed to know right at the outset that their ministry wasn't dependent upon their own innate power and authority, for they had none. They had none that was significant. It wasn't that they were somehow powerful in and of themselves. They did not need to rely on their own charisma or their own wisdom or their own human skill sets or their own abilities to be engaging or convincing. What they were going to need was his power and his authority to accomplish his mission. And so he gives them both. He gives them both. Now it seems that here he gives them a temporary taste of those things because it's not until later at his ascension that he gives them a more permanent source of power, if you will. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read this, but you'll receive power, right? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. These men need to understand that if they were going to accomplish anything of significance in their ministry, it was going to come because of the power of Christ and not their own power. And they needed to learn to trust in and rely on his power in them. And these men were never confused about whose power was on display in their life. Never. In fact, you could flip over to Acts chapter 3, and we have a situation in verse 12 where, where the, the apostles have healed a, a lame beggar of his lameness. They've commanded that disease. You've exercised Jesus' power and authority over that disease and commanded it to go, and it went. And they're brought before the, the city leaders, and they're, put, they're being interrogated about it. In verse 12, when Peter saw, saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made this man walk? Why are you looking at us like we did this by our power? He knew real clearly it wasn't his power. He goes on to explain, it's by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that this man is healed. He's the one that matters, not me. He's the one who's powerful. Not us. This was true of the Apostle Paul as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes and following, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He understood, Paul did, his own weakness and his own frailty and his own inability and his own fears. He was well acquainted with all those things. And left to himself, that was all he had, was weakness and frailty and fears. But praise God, he didn't operate his ministry out of those things. He also understood that his ministry was empowered by the power of God mediated through the Holy Spirit. And so when he did things with power and authority, men would see the power of God on display despite his own human weakness. And you know, the same is true for you and me. When God calls a man, when God calls a woman to go out and serve him in ministry in some sort of a way, he always supplies the power and the authority to execute the mission. It's never about the power of the messenger. It's always about the power of the king. Always. And it'll be true for you too. If God calls you to serve in his kingdom somewhere, he'll provide the power. If you don't, you don't have to feel like you're powerful enough or you have your own power, your own authority to serve in you because you don't. You just have to step out and obey Christ in serving. And as you do that, he'll provide the power and he'll provide the authority and he'll make your ministry effective. And at the end of the day, he'll receive all the glory for it because you didn't have it to begin with. He gave it to you and it'll always point to him. But these men would never know the power of God at work in their lives until they got out there and stepped out of their comfort zones and went out and started doing things that they knew they didn't have the ability in themselves to do. They needed to learn to trust in God's power and not themselves. And a fourth thing, they needed to learn to trust in God's provision. They needed to learn to trust in God's provision. So confidence in his message, compassion for human suffering, dependence on his power, and they need to trust in God's provision. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In case it wasn't challenging enough for them to go out on their own without Jesus for the first time, like that would be enough to make you shake in your sandals right there, wouldn't it? Like you've seen Jesus do all this, and now you've got to go do it by yourself for the first time? If that isn't enough, Jesus says, let's up the ante a little bit. And he forbids them from taking any supplies with them whatsoever. No extras. He requires them to travel extremely lightly. Literally, extremely lightly. These men have to learn by experience that they need to trust God to provide their needs. It's one thing to, again, like we mentioned earlier, it's one thing to say that I trust God to provide my needs. But it's another thing altogether different to actually be in a position where you have to trust God to supply your needs. And these men, if you had interviewed them, they surely would have said that they trusted God to provide for their needs. But now they're gonna go out, and Jesus says, you get out there, and don't take anything with you. Every single day, you're gonna have to trust that I'm gonna provide for you what you need for that day. Your food, place to stay, if you need extra clothes, you're going to have to trust me to give you those too. Take nothing with you. And when you go, I'm going to provide your needs every step along the way. You're going to learn how to trust in my provision. You know, I'm not sure it's even possible to truly know if I trust God to provide until I get into a situation where I have to trust God to provide. 
And so Jesus puts this, these men, he puts them in that situation right from the start. There's no safety net, there's no backup plan, it's just get out there and do it and watch and see if I don't provide for you. Interesting, the things that he forbids them to take, are, are, they're not the kind of things that you and I would call luxuries, are they? Like food, shelter, clothing? We would call those things not luxuries, but what? Yeah, necessities, right? Those are things you need. These are things you need to live. They're also the kinds of things that we often look to for our security, aren't they? So Jesus says, don't take any food. No granola bars, no nutrient bars, no beef jerky, nothing. Every day I'll provide you the food you need. Don't take any extra money. You're gonna have absolutely, you're gonna leave and depart on this mission trip with not even enough money to buy your next meal. No extra clothes, just what you're wearing on your back. No backups, no extra, no bag. The bag here he's talking about is like an open sack carried on the left hip by a strap over the right shoulder. It's often used by peasants and shepherds and beggars and quite often false prophets and wandering philosophers. Don't even carry that. You're going on a trip. You can't even carry a suitcase. You're not even allowed to carry your one personal item. Not even a man bag. You can't carry anything. Just go. Just take off. Every single thing you need, every single day, you're going to have to trust in my provision. No staff. Staff was used to walk, but it was also a weapon of defense. Don't need that either. You're going to have to trust me to defend you. As I read that this week, it immediately threw my mind back to the Old Testament, to the wilderness wanderings. Does it remind you of that? Where, where God's people are wandering in the desert, and what does God say to them about their food provision? How does he supply their food? Do you remember? He rings down manna from heaven. But every single day, he rings down just enough manna for how long? For that day. They were not allowed to store up any for the future, not for tomorrow, not for next week. Every morning you had to wake up and you had to look out the window and you had to look up to heaven and you had to trust God to provide your food for that day. You had no ability to provide for yourself. You could only trust in his provision. And God trained his people that he would provide their every need. And Jesus was planning to use these men here to change, to change the world with the gospel. It wasn't going to be a walk in the park. It was going to be a hard and challenging mission. There was going to be no time for them to lay up treasure on earth. They were going to have to trust in his daily provision for their lives. And so on this mission trip, he sends them right into the fire. And it didn't come natural to them to trust in God's daily provision any more than it comes natural for you, and any, any more than it comes natural for me. The natural inclination of my heart is to store up for the future. It's to make sure I got enough in my bank account for tomorrow and next week and next month and hopefully the rest of the year and, and hopefully there's enough for retirement and I've got more than one set of clothes. I've got a pantry full of food at my house. You do too, probably. Sometimes it's hard for us to trust, to learn how to trust in his provision, but we need to. And so he sends these men out to show them he'll provide. He'd heard them, these, these, they had heard him say things like what's recorded in Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, right? What you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food or the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? They'd heard Jesus teach that, Right? But it's one thing to hear Jesus teach that and to nod your head and say, oh yes, I trust that you'll provide. It's another thing to set off walking down the road with the clothes on your back and nothing else. 
and see if he provides. And so Jesus puts them in a situation where they have to act on what they've heard. So many Christians today sit on the sidelines of ministry and they never engage because they feel like they need something that they don't have. And they refuse to to move forward until they can see a way forward, until they can quantify God's provision, until they can get some sort of a roadmap of what it's going to look like, and they can count up and make sure that they have everything that they think they need for whatever it is God's calling them to do. And because rarely does God ever provide that, they never step out, and their faith begins to wither on the vine, and it never grows, and it never expands, because they refuse to take any risk to ever step out in faith and trust God. God calls his servants to be people who trust him, who trust him to provide. People who are willing to step out in faith even when they can't quantify exactly how it's going to all play out, but to trust that when God calls and when God sends, that God provides. There was a lot that these men lacked, a lot that they lacked. They didn't feel ready. I'm sure they were anxious about what they were about to do. Jesus wasn't giving them a complete road map. He wasn't explaining all the details. He was just saying to them, get up, get on the mission, and trust me to provide for you. That's the call. That's the call. And that's generally the call that he issues to those who he calls to do something for him. What is it that God's calling you to do that you're afraid to act on? What is it that God's calling you to do that you're scared to death to go do because you don't feel like you have what you need? Is he calling you to to go share the gospel with your neighbor, with a relative, with a friend? But you're telling yourself, well, I need more training, or I need to be able to answer more questions, or I I need to be more eloquent, or I need to be more this, or I need to have more that. Why don't you just step out and trust God and go do it and see if he doesn't provide? Is Is he calling you to volunteer to serve in some ministry area and you're afraid? Is he calling you to step up and teach? You say, well, I've never done that before. I, I need something more. I need something additional. I need help. I need some other provision. Why don't you just step up and do it? Let's see if God provides. Maybe you're here this morning and God's calling you to leave your career, to leave whatever it is that you've invested your life in up to this point and to go into gospel ministry, to serve as a pastor, to serve as a missionary somewhere. Maybe God's calling somebody in here to that this morning. And you're terrified and you're afraid and you think you don't have what you need. You don't have the right provision. You don't see a full roadmap. You don't know how it'll all work out. Why don't you just go? Why don't you just step out like these men did and see if God doesn't provide? He never calls people to something he doesn't provide for. This message isn't about me, but my life is a living witness to that. As is every minister that I've ever met who was faithful and competent and did anything of any value for the kingdom. None of us are adequate in ourselves. None of us have what we need. It's only by the provision of the Lord. Well, our time is up. Last thing. Not only do they need to trust in God's provision, but they need to be content with God's provision. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Whenever they do not receive you, 
You know, leave that town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Just very quickly. They need to trust in God to provide, and they need to be content with what God provided. That's the second piece of this, this whole piece about going to a house and staying there and departing from there. The point was, you go into a town, and wherever God opens the door for somebody to show hospitality to you, whenever they open the door and they invite you into their place, and they love you, and they provide for your needs, you stay right there until you're done in that city, and you, when you're ready to leave, you leave from that house. You don't bounce house to house trying to find better accommodation somewhere else. You don't keep trying to better your situation. You be content with what God provides for you. False teachers and wandering philosophers were often known for this stuff. They would go into a town and they'd get hospitality somewhere, but if they met somebody that was a little wealthier, somebody who had a little more power or a little more ability to provide, they would move out and go into that house because it was more comfortable and it was better. And that person may be able to, they may be able to leverage their wealth a little better. And Jesus is saying to these guys, you don't do any of that mess. You go into the town, and wherever the door opens, and somebody shows you hospitality, you go there, and you stay there, and you be content with what God provides through that family. You don't look for better. It isn't about you storing up for yourself. It's about you being content with what God provides. And the second piece of that is this. You're going to go into these villages, and there's always going to be somebody there who's going to open their door. God has his people. They're going to open their door. They're going to believe the message you preach. They're going to welcome you in, and they're going to care for your needs. Those people will always be there when you go, Jesus is saying to them. But you're also going to find that in every town, there are going to be people who close their door to you, who reject the message, and who don't want to hear anything that you have to say, and who don't want to help you along the way. And you need to expect that, and that's going to happen too. And you need to be content with how all that shakes out. It's not up to you how people respond. It's up to God. You be content with how it works out. You just go deliver the message. And when people reject it, you don't argue with them, you don't fight with them, you don't try to convince them. You just shake the dust off your feet, which was just a symbol of, of rejection. A symbol of, 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 of not wanting any further association with those folks. And you move on to the next town. Well, that's a pretty robust thing, list of things, isn't it? That these men needed. And they were going to get all those things on this missionary journey. And you know what? If you're going to be effective for the cause of Christ in any way in your life, if your life is going to count for the kingdom, you need these things too. You have to have confidence in the gospel. You have to truly believe what the Bible says, that the gospel is the power of God to save. But there's no other message that you can deliver to somebody that can change their life. You can tell them how to manage their money. You can give them some tips on how to communicate in marriage. You can maybe give them some life lessons you've learned from your business. And those things may have marginal help in their life, but only the gospel has the power to change them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's the only message that has the power to save. And if you don't have confidence in the message, you'll never share the message. And we've got to go out and share the message with, with, with compassion for people. We have to love people. We have to care about people. And we, we have to get out there and do whatever it is we do, whether it's preaching or whether it's teaching a Sunday school class or whether it's serving in vacation Bible school with the airplanes or whatever. Whatever we do, we have to go at it with an understanding that I don't have the power to do this. Only God has the power. And I've got to trust in his power at work in me. We've got to be able to trust that he's going to provide for us what we need and be content with what he gives. If those things become a reality in your life, there's nothing you can't do for the kingdom of God. There's nothing. There's nothing. You have everything you need right now 
apart from these things. And the only way to get them is not by observation. It's by getting out there and doing it. A couple of years ago, we had a group of, of men from this congregation that flew across the world to, uh, to Ethiopia to walk around from village to village on, in the frontier part of Ethiopia in the midst of Muslim villages sharing the gospel. And I know all of these men. I know none of them had ever done anything like that before. And I'm quite sure that when they got on the airplane to fly out of Charleston, they had no idea how they were going to have the power to do this, how God was going to provide for their needs, or whether the message they delivered was going to necessarily have impact. But I bet if you talk to any of them right now, they'll tell you on the backside of that opportunity to practice what they'd been observing, all of these things here were confirmed in their hearts. They learned to love people who were suffering. They saw the power of the gospel transform people's lives. They knew what it was like to walk into a village and to not know what you're going to meet and to not know what you're going to say and to have to trust on God to provide not only the words but the power of the, behind the message. So this morning, I guess the, the thrust is just this. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question is, how, how is this fleshing out in your life and in your ministry to the world around you? At this point in your life, are you just one of the sitting soakers? You know what I mean? You just come and sit and soak and observe and listen and watch, but not actually doing anything for the king? Just living it, playing it safe? Armchair quarterback? Self-appointed expert who's listening and observing but not doing? Maybe the call to you is to get up and go somewhere, somehow, to do something. You're here this morning and you're not a Christian. The call to you is to hear the message of the King. That Jesus Christ is the King. He lived. He died for your sins. He died on a cross for you, for your rebellion. And he was raised for your eternal life. Once you repent of your sin and trust your life to him, it'll change everything. It'll change everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we hear your message this morning, and it's convicting. It's really convicting to us. Because when we're put in situations where we don't know what to do, and we're not sure how it's going to work out, and we, don't, we can't quantify the results and the ability along the way, and we don't think we have the power, our inclination is to do nothing, absolutely nothing. It's to leave it for somebody else. And when we do that, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to serve. We handicap the church. And your message doesn't go out with power the way it ought to. Lord, I pray that this morning you'd bring conviction to our lives. To those who've just been sitting and observing and watching and listening but not doing, Lord, I pray that in a very short order you would give them a vision for something to do that they get up and get out and serve in your kingdom somewhere. Whatever it is you're calling them. There's a hundred opportunities here in this church for people to serve, to get out and put into practice what they've been hearing, to see you provide and to see your power at work in and through them.
Motivate them to go. Lord, where we lack confidence in your provision, we pray that you'd give us fresh confidence. Where we lack confidence in your message, Lord, remind us of the power of the gospel to transform our own hearts. And may that be the message that we declare to those in our world. Lord, call us to respond by your spirit as you see fit. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.